1: The way we go. Episode 69 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, May 24th, 2021. The first day of the Capitals 2021 offseason. I said on Friday's podcast that the possibility existed that the next time you and I spoke on this podcast, the cap season would be over. Sure enough, that's exactly what happened. The caps won game one of their first round series against the Boston Bruins in the 2021 Stanley Cup playoffs and then never won again. From up 1-0 to losing the series 4-1. Another disappointing postseason for the Caps. I've been a Capitals fan my entire sporting life. Nothing, and I mean nothing, is worse about being a Caps fan than the spring tradition of playoff disappointment. A tradition that with the exceptions of 1990, 1998, and 2018 has happened every time the Caps have made the Stanley Cup playoffs. 31 all-time postseason appearances for the Caps. 28 of the 31 have ended in a first or second round. That is brutal, but that is reality, and the reality continued with a 3-1 loss to the Boston Bruins at Capital One Arena in Game 5 on Sunday night. As Mama Evans said many years ago on the classic television show, Good Times, when she smashed that glass bowl in the kitchen.
0: Damn, damn, damn.
1: Exactly, Mama Evans. Thank you so much. Hey, hello and welcome. Happy Monday. Yeah, Uh it's not a happy Monday. Who are we kidding? Capital season over. Thanks to that loss to the Bruins at Capital One Arena on Sunday night. The Wizards, they lost their game on Sunday. Lost game one at the Philadelphia 76ers on Sunday afternoon. What was a winnable game one in the first round of the NBA playoffs. The damn Washington Wizards! Yes, exactly, Stephen A. You see, what other podcast gives your Mama Evans sound and Stephen A. Smith sound in the opening segment other than this one? Sunday, not exactly a banner day if you're a Capitals and a Wizards fan, but this is a part, a big part of why this podcast exists. I am here for you no matter what. And the truth is, if things were always good, then things would never be good because good wouldn't be good. Good would just be normal. Think about that for a moment. Let that philosophical thought marinate for a moment on a Monday. But you need the bad to appreciate the good. And sadly, we had more than our share of bad on Sunday. My thoughts on my analysis of the end of the capital season and the Wizards game one loss coming up. I also have a lot for you on the Nationals three game sweep of the Orioles at Nationals Park over the weekend. The Nats bats, they were alive. Of course, the Orioles horrendous pitching had something to do with that. And I'll get to Davy Martinez being mad at Juan Soto for something Soto did or maybe more specifically didn't do in Sunday afternoon's Nats win over the O's. I am not a huge golf fan, but you don't have to be a huge golf fan to appreciate what Phil Mickelson did on Sunday. That was tremendous, winning the PGA Championship at the age of 50. Dude is half a C-note And he just won one of the four majors in golf. Phil Mickelson became the oldest winner ever of a major in golf. Oldest winner in the 161 years of major championship golf. His first win of a major since 2013. He became just the 10th player to win a major in each of three decades. And here to me is the true takeaway if you're a DC sports fan. If Phil Mickelson can win the PGA Championship at the age of 50... Why can't Ryan Fitzpatrick lead the Washington football team to the playoffs in his age 39 season? Think about that. There's your happy thought for this Monday. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I got this tweet from Riggo. Wait a second. El Rigo? No, not the actual John Riggins. The actual John Riggins, great guy. I hosted the official Redskins pregame show for the 2018 season with Riggins. He could not have been easier to work with. Very nice guy, totally egoless. I'll always appreciate that. Anyway, Rigo tweeted me regarding our conversation on Friday's podcast about the Dan Snyder conversation with TMZ Sports. Dan Snyder, who basically never speaks publicly, engaging in a conversation with TMZ Sports that was published on Thursday. The chat happening while the Donnie, his wife Tanya Snyder, Washington football team president Jason Wright, and others were touring stadiums in Los Angeles. So, tweeted Rigo, Al, just listening to your latest podcast, you know that Snyder TMZ thing was totally staged, right? So, Rigo, I consider that because yes, a lot of these TMZ gotcha interviews are staged, or at the very least, the person granting the interview is aware ahead of time that TMZ is coming. It is possible that this conversation was staged to some extent too. I can't dismiss that. But two things. The first thing, Danny agreeing to talk to TMZ Sports would go against everything we know about the Donnie, who, like I said, basically never speaks publicly. And as we saw at the Ron Rivera introductory press conference two Januarys ago, may even get nervous when speaking publicly. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Exactly, Danny. Thank you. The second thing is, what would Danny have to gain by granting an interview to TMZ Sports, by pre-planning an interview with TMZ Sports? Like, Why wouldn't Danny just say to TMZ if TMZ came to him prior to this actually happening, no, I'm not interested in this. What, what, what is, what's in it for me? Why am I going to do something like this? Why would Dan have agreed to this? What was the benefit from Dan's perspective? Nothing as far as I can tell, other than, like I said on Friday, I did think that Dan came off fine, but you know it's not like this was some groundbreaking moment for Dan Snyder in terms of public perception. This was not some breakout interview that makes you say, "My God, that Dan Snyder! What charisma! What poise! What command of the moment!" First off, happy Thanksgiving, to everybody. Exactly, Danny. So yeah, I can't entirely dismiss that that conversation was pre-planned to at least some extent, but there's a lot to me working against that notion. All right, so I just mentioned Ron Rivera, a.k.a. Don Ron. As you know by now, Don Ron, if he loves one thing, it is position flex. Position flex. Yes. Well, one of the great supporters of this podcast, John Grandland of Real Broker, offers something called commission flex. If you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, if you're even just thinking about selling your home Contact my guy, John Grandland, a.k.a. John G., and ask about his commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron. You have position flex. John G. has commission flex. You see, not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, don't pay six percent. Let John Grandlin put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. Again, Commission Flex. John has a menu of commission packages that you can choose from, including selling your home for free. Yes, you heard that right. For free, some conditions apply. Interviewing John Grandlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar and maybe even most importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly. And there is never any obligation to list or sell. Do yourself a favor and call John Grandland. He will sell your home guaranteed. That's right. Guaranteed. He guarantees a sale of your home. Call John G now, 703 537 67 Forty-seven. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you and that you want the commission flex that you heard about on the Al Galdi podcast. Again, that phone number 703-537-6747. Or you can check them out online at johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. John Grandland. Nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, he is the master Of Commission Flex. Position Flex. Yes, Ron. Just like Position Flex. So I know that Twitter can be a cesspool for negativity, and there are many things about Twitter that aren't so great, but there are plenty of things about Twitter that are quite good. And one of the things I really do like about Twitter is that it allows for me to see from you real time reactions to what's going on in sports. And so as the capital season was ending on Sunday night, I was hearing it from you guys on Twitter in all kinds of ways. And I love it. This is good. This is really good. It helps me formulate thoughts. It helps me think about how I want to talk about things on the podcast. But just to give you a sample of what was out there, tweet from Caps Skins fan. You can always tweet me at Al Galdi. Time to blow it up. This isn't a cup contender. They stink. Tweet from Hingerty. Different coach, same result, time for a rebuild. Tweet from Brock. The last two seasons were inexcusable. It's one thing to lose, but another to be so obviously disinterested in the games. Tweet from Keith. Curse of trots. Tweet from Mike. I'm numb to it at this point. 2018 was such blissful departure. This one will be remembered by me as the series in which the Cavs blew two late third period leads. They could have been up 3-0 if they had not. Tweet from Connor Hammond, one of my favorite times of year, the memoriam for the overrated Caps on the solid Al Galdi show. I will take that, Connor. I will take that. Solid. You can do a lot worse in life than solid. There's no doubt. What happened on Sunday night was painful. What happened to the Caps in this series was brutal, And the reality of being a Capitals fan remains as it's always been. The Caps lose in first and second rounds of Stanley Cup playoffs. That's just the way it's been. And it feels so much right like that's just the way it's always going to be. One more time, 31 all-time playoff appearances now for the Caps. 28 of the 31 have ended in a first or second round. There are three exceptions. 1990, when the Caps made the Eastern Conference Final. 1998 when the Caps made it to the Stanley Cup final and 2018, when the Capitals, of course, won the Stanley Cup final. And you think about how we would feel, where we would be at, had the Caps not won that 2018 Stanley Cup championship. And I don't even want to consider that, actually, uh, beyond what I just said, because the truth is the Capitals since winning the Cup and prior to winning the Cup have been nothing but one flop after another in the Stanley Cup playoffs. The Capitals now have been ousted in the first round of each of the last three Stanley Cup playoffs. Since winning the Cup in 18, it's been three straight first round exits for the Capitals. 2019 Stanley Cup playoffs, Caps lost in the first round to the Carolina Hurricanes in seven games as the Caps blew a 2 nothing series lead and lost game seven at home 4-3 in double overtime, a game in which the Caps blew second period leads of 2-0 and 3-1. The Caps in the 2020 Stanley Cup playoffs lost in the first round to, yes, former Caps head coach Barry Trotz, and his New York Islanders in Toronto in five games, resulting in the firing of old Trotsy's successor as Caps head coach, Todd Reardon. Caps got outscored in the series, 17-8, got demolished in five-on-five play over the first three games in the series. And now in the 2021 Stanley Cup playoffs, the Caps have lost in the first round in five games. To the Boston Bruins, Caps are up 1-0, end up losing the series 4-1. Look, I know. It's playoff hockey, it's flukish, the first three games in the series, all one-goal games, all overtime games. Yes, I know. The setup for this NHL postseason is such that you're playing an intra-division opponent. The Boston Bruins are more like a team you should be facing in, say, the second round or even the third round, and said the Caps had to face that team in the first round. I'll grant you that. But still! 28 out of 31 all-time playoff appearances your franchise is ousted in a first or second round there's only so much excuse making you can make and the thing is there's never been a singular reason for why this keeps happening to the caps it's never been like well they need to fix this and then they're good to go or if they would just address that the capitals would make it to a bunch of stanley cup finals like no it's mysterious why this happens. There's no necessarily rhyme or reason for why this keeps happening. It's hockey. It's a flukish sport. You can play really well and still end up losing. And you know what? In a lot of ways, we saw that in game five on Sunday night. But before we get to that, I actually would like to talk about game four on Friday night. Two games happened in this series since we last talked caps in depth on this podcast. And I don't know about you, But what happened on Friday night actually angered me a lot more than what happened on Sunday night. So the Capitals on Friday night lost at the Boston Bruins 4-1 to fall behind in the series 3-1. And you knew with that result that the Caps, more likely than not, were going to be done. Maybe as soon as Sunday night. And of course, that's what ended up happening. The Caps in that game on Friday night, yes, remained without their goaltender Vitek Vanacek but did get back Lars Eller. He was back from his lower body injury that was suffered in game two in the series, only ended up missing game three. Head coach Peter Laviolette on Friday night uh, made some lineup changes. Flip-flop T.J. Oshie and Tom Wilson had Wilson back on the top line. So he was once again top line Tom and Oshie was on the second line. And Laviolette in getting back Eller was back to having his third line of Connor Sheary, Lars Eller, and Michael Roffel the line that had been tasked with dealing with the Boston Bruins top line, the perfection line of David Posternak, Patrice Bergeron, and Brad Marchand. So there was reason to feel like the Capitals were still very much in the series going into Friday night's game, right? The Caps were only down 2-1, and especially with Eller back, you know, and maybe some of these lineup tweaks are like, okay, here we go. All the Caps have to do is win this game. You know, you've had nothing but one goal games, overtime games so far in the series, series at a two, it becomes essentially a best of three. Well, what ended up happening on Friday night? It's not just that the Caps lost, it's that the Caps put forth a weak and pathetic performance. The Caps came out flat and never really got going. The Caps in the first period of that game on Friday night per natural stat trick had a mere eight five on five shot attempts to the Bruins 18. That the game was scoreless after one period was not at all indicative of how the game was going. The Caps were thoroughly outplayed by the Bruins over the first 20 minutes of that game. The Caps got owned in the puck possession battle when it came to high danger chances in the game. The Caps for the game, again, we're talking about game four on Friday night, per natural stat trick, had one five-on-five high danger shot attempt to the Bruins' nine. I want to repeat that. One five-on-five high danger shot attempt to the Bruins' nine, and the Caps finished the game with just 20 shots on goal to the Bruins' 37. The Capitals were feckless when it came to their performance on Friday night. The Capitals were spineless with so much of the performance that the team put forth on Friday night. And don't just take my word for it. Take the words of the Capitals head coach, Peter Laviolette, who on Saturday said, and I quote, there's no room for the week in the playoffs. Okay, I want to repeat that. There's no room for the week in the playoffs. He essentially said, at least this is how I took it, we played weak in Game 4. We can't play weak in Game 5. And you know, it wasn't just the puck possession stuff in Game 4 on Friday night. The Caps got smashed in the special teams battle in Game 4. So Game 4 was yet another penalty-filled game in this series. The two teams in Game 4 combined for 16 minors. 16! The Caps were called for 7 minors. The Bruins were called for 9 minors. Four of the five goals in game four were power play goals. But the Caps in game four, one for seven on the power play. The Bruins in game four, three for five on the power play. You combine all of this with Ilya Samsonov not being great on Friday night. He stopped just 33 of the 37 shots on goal that he faced. And the Caps were down 3-1 in the series. And then came the game on Sunday night. Caps fall to the Bruins at Capital One Arena, 3-1 the final, lose the series 4-1. Now, specific to the game on Sunday night, the Capitals actually played a lot better. Vitek Vanacek, yes, remained out, so he ended up missing each of the last four games in this series due to that lower body injury that was suffered in the first period of Game One. La Violette again shuffled his lines big time. Michael Roffel, very interestingly was a healthy scratch. Daniel Sprong was back in the lineup off having been a healthy scratch in games three and four. Laviolette did all kinds of tinkering when it came to the top three lines. And truth be told, the Caps were better. They were a lot better on Sunday night. The Caps dominated the puck possession battle on Sunday night. The Caps in game five per natural stat trick, 57 five on five shot attempts to the Bruins 36, including, how about this, 43 five on five shot attempts to the Bruins 21, over the first two periods. Any notion of the Capitals were gutless on Sunday night as they were gutless on Friday night, not true. It's fake news. Caps were gutless on Friday night, really weren't gutless on Sunday night. Now the Caps did only have a 9-7 advantage and 5-on-5 high danger shot attempts in game five, but the Caps still were good enough in the puck possession battle to finish with 2.31 expected goals versus the Bruins' 1.3 expected goals. And the reason I bring up expected goals is expected goals is a metric that Natural Statric has, which basically says, okay, given what you did in the puck possession game, what should you have done in terms of actual goals scored? And the Capitals deserved, quote unquote, to score 2.31 goals, the Bruins' 1.3. So the Capitals deserved to do better on Sunday night, and yet did not, Right. The Caps ended up losing 3-1. How about just shots on goal, period? Caps in game five, 41 shots on goal to the Bruins, 19. And yet, the Capitals lost 3-1. This is what happens to the Capitals in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Now you say, well, why did this happen, Galdi? Caps dominate puck possession and still lose? Yeah, well, a few things. So number one, Samsonov struggled for a second consecutive game. Uh, he stopped just 16 of the 19 shots on goal. That he faced on Sunday night. The Caps again, 41 shots on goal, the Bruins 19, and yet the Capitals lost the game 3-1. Now, in fairness to Sam Sonop on two of the goals, he very much got let down by those around him. The Caps effort on the David Posternock even strength goal, 228 into the second period for a one nothing Bruins lead, was pathetic. Posternak got the puck above the left circle in the Caps defensive zone, totally humiliated and turned around Nick Dowd while skating the puck through the left circle, then skated the puck past the goal line to the left of the net, and then back up right into the crease, unobstructed for about as easy of a goal right on the doorstep as you'll ever see. What the Capitals defenseman Nick Jensen was doing, I have no idea. Jensen just let knock waltz right to the front of the net. So that was really bad. And then the Bruins third goal, the second of the two Patrice Bergeron goals, this one an even-strand goal, twelve twenty-five into the third period for a 3-1 Bruins lead uh came thanks to a turnover by TJ Oshie in the Caps defensive zone. Also, uh, on that goal was David Posternock standing right in front of Samsonov. So it's not all Ilya Samsonov's fault, but still, ultimately, he stopped just sixteen of the nineteen shots on goal that he faced. As the Bruins were being bombarded with again. 41 shots on goal as the Bruins goaltender Tuka Rask was stopping 40 of the 41 shots on goal that he faced. Samsonov stopped just 16 of the 19 shots on goal that he faced. And the worst goal, and this is not a goal you can ascribe to anyone other than Samsonov, was that initial Patrice Bergeron goal. The even strength goal by Bergeron, 1405 into the second period for a 2 nothing Bruins lead. Bergeron scoring on a wrister from the high slot with Samsonov not at all screened. In fact, there wasn't a player near Samsonov and he let that puck seep through. So I was not impressed with Samsonov in this game. Again, it's not all on him, but that's not the point. Sometimes things aren't perfect around you. you got to rise to the occasion. The same way that Rask rose to the occasion on Sunday night, Samsonov did not do that. And I tell you, in terms of the offseason, Capitals have got to get their arms around this goaltending situation. Is Samsonov the goaltender of the future or isn't he? Oh, by the way, set to be a restricted free agent. To what extent do the Caps believe in Vitek Vanacek, who obviously started game one, then never was heard from again after that first period in which he left due to injury? And where are we at with King Henry, Henrik Lundqvist, and this heart situation? There are a lot of questions that need to be addressed when it comes to the Capitals at goaltender. Also for the Capitals and their game five loss on Sunday night, the conclusion to a terrible series on the power play. You know, the Caps for years have been known for being great on the power play. The power play was a mess this postseason. The caps in game five, 0 for 4 on the power play. The caps in the series, 3 for 21 on the power play. I talked about this going into the series, how both the Capitals and the Bruins were top 10 in the NHL in the regular season in both power play efficiency and penalty kill efficiency. And which team won the special teams battle was going to go a long way towards determining which team won the series. Well, the Capitals got smashed in the special teams battle in Game 4 and then got wrecked some more in Game 5. Now, the Caps did not give up a power play goal in Game 5. That is true. But the Caps, again... 0 for 4 on the power play, 3 for 21 on the power play in the series. In the regular season, the Caps were third in the NHL in power play efficiency. The Bruins were second in the NHL in penalty kill efficiency. It was strength versus strength. It was irresistible force against a movable object. And the Bruins very clearly ended up winning that battle. That's a particularly nagging aspect of this series. And then there's something like what went down with Evgeny Kuznetsov in Game 5. And in so many ways, Evgeny Kuznetsov is emblematic of this Capitals team. So Evgeny Kuznetsov actually did a lot of things well in Game 5. He had a game-high 5 shots on goal. He had a game-high 10 shot attempts. He was second on the Caps in 5-on-5 shot attempt percentage for per natural stat trick at 75. Kuznetsov on the ice in 5-on-5 situations on Sunday night, the result for the Caps was 21 shot attempts for, seven shot attempts against. But what old Kuzi's Game 5 will be remembered for more than anything is what he did in the third period. Caps with a power play in the third period. Kuznetsov enters the Bruins' crease on his own. He was not shoved into the paint. He ends up shoving the Bruins' goaltender, Tuka Rask, from behind. And that ends up negating a sharp-angle power play goal by Lars Eller with 537 left in the third period. The goal would have cut the Caps deficit to 3-2. Maybe the goal isn't scored, if not for what Kuzi did to Rask, but it was a boneheaded thing for Kuznetsov to do. Again, it's one thing if you get shoved into the crease and you knock the goaltender, knock into the goaltender, even shove the goaltender inadvertently. It's another thing if you willingly enter the crease, i.e. the paint, and shove the goaltender from behind, and then get out of there, as essentially Kuznetsov did. That's what happened. Eller scores the goal on a near impossible shot, by the way. That was some shot by Eller. And the Capitals, thinking they're down by just one, with still plenty of time left, instead, no, still down by two, as the power play goal from Eller was negated. Terrible moment for Evgeny Kuznetsov there. And like I said, Kuznetsov in a lot of ways captures the Caps, because Kuznetsov is very gifted, Kuznetsov has been very productive. You know, you look at the capitals and if you're being objective about things, you can't be that mad at them. This was a very rough season in terms of injuries and absences. The caps once again had a very good regular season. Once again had a playoff making regular season. We shouldn't just take those things for granted. I know I don't and I talk about it all the time. Now the capitals don't get enough credit for these good regular seasons the caps don't get enough credit for making all of these post seasons in order to consistently be ousted in the first and second rounds of stanley cup playoffs you must wait for it make stanley cup playoffs and the capitals make stanley cup playoffs like few teams you'll ever see but the aggravation that is these constant ousters in first and second rounds of the stanley cup playoffs is totally understandable and with kuznetsov it's like on the one hand you appreciate the skill You appreciate the production. I will never forget that it was Kuznetsov, not the Consumite Trophy winner. Alex Ovechkin, who led the Caps in points in the 2018 Stanley Cup playoffs. I will never forget Kuznetsov scoring the game-winning overtime goal in the 2-1 win at the Pittsburgh Penguins in Eastern Conference Semis Game 6 to advance to the 2018 Eastern Conference Final, but I also won't forget when it comes to Kuznetsov, the cocaine controversy of 2019. I also will not forget when it comes to Kuznetsov, him disappearing for stretches in seasons, him having been benched. You know, Kuznetsov twice getting COVID-19 this past season. Not that getting COVID-19 makes you a terrible person, but you do wonder about, hey, was this guy breaking protocols and not really following the guidelines as he was supposed to be? And that's why he kept getting COVID. I mean, Kuznetsov is a COVID-19 situation away from getting the hat trick, the COVID-19 hat trick, okay? He's aiming for the COVID hatty. It feels like Kuznetsov is with all the times the guys dealt with COVID-19 over these last few months. So yeah, man, if you're frustrated with Kuznetsov, I hear you. If you're perplexed by Kuznetsov, I hear you. You know, there's been some talk of the Caps perhaps even exposing Kuznetsov in the upcoming Seattle Kraken expansion draft. That's going to be taking place on July 21st. And that does bring us now to what now for the Capitals? The Capitals, to me, need to get younger. The Capitals, to me, need to get faster. I think the Capitals have got to figure out the goaltending situation. But I would not advocate that the Capitals just blow all of this up. I wouldn't. I think the Capitals are still good enough to where the proper tweaks can have the Caps back to making a run in a Stanley Cup postseason. And I know, 28 out of 31, it almost never happens with our team. But it did happen in 2018. And the Caps have done too good of a job assembling talent to all of a sudden hit the nuclear button and blow the whole thing up. The Capitals have enough in the way of talented guys who are young or in their primes or at the very least still should have multiple productive seasons left to wear. just blowing it all up now, to me, would be premature. You gotta figure some stuff out for sure. But I don't think you have to just completely wipe the slate clean here and start over with this team. I don't. It's hockey. It's a Stanley Cup playoffs. You don't have to be great to do great Even if the Capitals on paper aren't as good as they've been in the past, it doesn't matter. They just have to be good enough to continue to make the Stanley Cup playoffs and just kind of see what happens at that point. I would not not protect Kuznetsov for the expansion draft. I would not trade away Kuznetsov unless things behind the scenes with him are way worse than we know. Okay, then it's different if that's the case. But if it's just sort of these nuisance things that keep popping up with him, I would continue to play the game that is Evgeny Kuznetsov, because it is a game that can be rather rewarding. And yes, he makes a lot of money. He signed an eight-year, $62.4 million contract in July 2017. But he's going into just his age 29 season. When it comes to free agency this offseason, I mentioned Samsonov. He is the biggest of the restricted free agents to be for the Capitals. There's no debating who the biggest unrestricted free agent to be for the Caps is. That is Alex Ovechkin. Yes, that mega money contract that he signed more than a decade ago is up, and he is set to be an unrestricted free agent. Some other notable unrestricted free agents to be for the Caps. Michael Raffle, who you would think is as good as gone with him being, again, a healthy scratch for Game 5. Defenseman Zidane Chara. that's going to be an interesting decision because he played so much and, for the most part, played well this season. Uh, goaltender Craig Anderson, who's heroics in Game 1, we'll never forget, and uh, also Daniel Carr. I would be stunned if Alex Ovechkin isn't re-signed because of, yes, what he has meant to the franchise, but, you know, more prominently, what he can still do and still be. Alex Ovechkin is still a very good player. Alex Ovechkin ended up having a very good series. I don't think he's got enough credit for this. Ovi brought it in this series. You go back to the loss in Game 4 on Friday night. Ovechkin in that game, another good game. He scored the Caps' lone goal, which was a power play goal 454 into the third period. He also had a team high four shots on goal, a team high 10 shot attempts, six of which were blocked, and a team high six hits. And then Ovechkin in the final game, the game five loss on Sunday, Ovi was good again. He had four shots on goal, nine shot attempts, a game high eight hits, let all caps, non-goaltenders in ice time. Ovechkin over the five games in this series, two goals, two assists, led the Caps with 20 shots on goal, led the Caps with 25 hits, and was number five on the Caps in five-on-five shot attempt percentage for NHL.com at 54.7. Ovi can still go. Ovi can still play. Ovi is nowhere near the biggest problem the Capitals had in this series against the Bruins. The Caps lost this series because they were dealing with way too much in the way of injury and absence coming into the postseason. The Caps lost this series because their goaltending situation was a mess due to injury and absence. Remember, the Caps over the first three games of this series started three different goaltenders. The Caps lost this series because they were gutless in a game four loss at the Bruins on Friday night. But Alex Ovechkin is not why the Caps lost this series. I expect him to be re-signed. I think he should be re-signed. And if you're still in the Alex Ovechkin business, and oh, by the way, you're still in the Nicholas Backstrom business, then that's not a reason to blow everything up. That's a reason to keep at it try to add some pieces, try to get younger, try to get faster, try to get better. But I don't think the nuclear option has to be the option. But there's no doubt, man, this stinks. Three consecutive first round exits and any notion that the Capitals winning the Cup in the 2018 Stanley Cup playoffs was the start of something, the start of a run, the start of multiple Stanley Cup championships or at least multiple Stanley Cup final appearances or even multiple Eastern Conference final appearances. Uh, here's what you're looking at now. Three straight first round exits with the last two each happening. In just five games. As Mama Evans on the classic television show Good Time said, when she smashed that glass bowl in the kitchen in a moment of solitary realization that things weren't so good.
0: Damn, down,
1: <laughs> Exactly, Mama Evans. Well, if only the Capitals had had at their disposal Dr. George Verghese. Maybe he could have helped. Maybe he could have advised the Capitals on how to beat it the Bruins. Dr. George Verghese is the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He's a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. He knows his stuff. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland knows its stuff, focuses on medical dermatology and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care, including something very special and cutting-edge, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. Not enjoyable things, obviously. But SRT is revolutionary. SRT is a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. Having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area. And SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more for you or someone you know or love, call 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That's 301-396-3401 or visit MidAtlanticSkin.com. AtlanticSkin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid Atlantic region. So entering the 2021 NBA playoffs, number eight seeds are five and 69 in first round series against number one seeds since the NBA playoffs expanded to 16 teams, beginning with the 1983. 1984 season. Five and 69. That's the history that the Wizards are facing in trying to beat the Philadelphia 76ers in the first round of the Eastern Conference playoffs. Eight seeds do not beat one seeds in the NBA playoffs often. And if an eight is going to beat a one, you figure that the eight has to pull off a win in a winnable game. Sunday afternoon's game one for the Wizards at Philadelphia was a winnable game. And that's what makes the result Especially painful. To borrow from what Denny Green said years ago, the 76ers are who the Wizards thought the 76ers were, and the Wizards let the 76ers off the hook. They are who we thought they were, and we let them off the hook. Exactly, Denny. 125 118 was the final on Sunday afternoon. Look, I don't expect the Wizards to win this series, but that doesn't mean that I'm not rooting like crazy for the Wizards to win this series. And so I was disappointed with how Game 1 played out. Make no mistake, Game 1 was a winnable game for the Wizards, but they fell apart for a good chunk of a second half that included their top two players being way too sloppy. So first, the falling apart part. Uh, the Wizards were up by 5 in the third quarter at 77-72, but they then allowed the Sixers to go on a 36-20 run that put the Wizards down 108-97 in the fourth quarter. And that was more or less the game, although it certainly did not have to be the game. The Wizards committed nine turnovers in the second half. All nine were committed by either Bradley Beal or Russell Westbrook. Yeah, the Wizards, two best players, the two guys most responsible for the Wizards rallying to make the NBA postseason and then the NBA playoffs. Those two guys also are the two people who ultimately doomed the Wizards in this game one loss at Philadelphia. Beal committed five turnovers in the second half Beal had two bad pass turnovers within a minute of each other in the fourth quarter with the Wizards trailing by six at 112-106 Beal while driving into the lane threw the basketball to basically nobody in the paint I mean Robin Lopez was the nearest wizard but I mean if you're watching the game in real time you're like what is Beal doing there who is he throwing the basketball to so that was a bad pass turnover with 543 left in the fourth quarter and then Beal, while at the left block, made a terrible pass into the paint for a bad pass turnover with 503 left in the fourth quarter. I mean, the the pass was high. Again, you were you had to try to figure out like who exactly was that two. It was ugly from Beal. Again, five turnovers for him in the second half. Westbrook committed four turnovers in the second half, including three in the fourth quarter, and nothing was worse than Westbrook stepping out of bounds a turnover with the Wizards trailing by five at 121-116 with 37.1 seconds left in the fourth quarter. A pass by Daniel Gafford off him getting a defensive rebound was behind Westbrook near the left sideline in the Wizards backcourt. Westbrook thought he had control of the basketball but then seemingly stepped on the out-of-bounds line with his right foot and I say seemingly Because it was very difficult to tell whether his right foot actually came down on the line. You can watch the replay. There are some angles where it looks pretty clear that Westbrook did step on the line. There are other angles that suggest that maybe he didn't step on the line. But whatever. It was close enough to where the play being ruled a turnover, being reviewed, and then being maintained as a turnover. It's not the kind of thing you can go nuts over, okay? I mean, it would have been nice to see that break go the Wizards' way but it did. And Wizards should have never been in that spot to begin with. It does start with the errant pass by Gafford, but Westbrook had enough time and should have had enough wherewithal there to collect the basketball without stepping out of bounds, but he did not. So that was a bad play, really bad play. And then Westbrook also had two fourth quarter lost ball turnovers within a minute of each other. He lost the ball while spitting in the paint amidst the double team, and the Wizards trailing by six with 429 left in the fourth quarter. The ensuing 76ers possession resulted in a Danny Green left wing three that put the Wizards down by nine at 115-106 with 423 left in the fourth quarter. So that was a big swing. I mean, That's a potential five, maybe even six-point swing right there. Wiz down by six, Westbrook turnover, Danny Green three, Wiz down by nine. And then Westbrook just lost the basketball while dribbling into the paint with just under four minutes left. In the fourth quarter. So really brutal stuff from Beale and Westbrook from a turnover perspective in the second half on Sunday. I mean, and again, these are the Wizards' two best players. These are the two guys most responsible for the Wizards being in this spot to begin with, but they did not deliver in the fourth quarter, especially when it came to taking care of the basketball. Now, Bradley Beal overall to me had a mixed game one. It certainly was not all bad for Beale. He finished with 33 points, 10 rebounds, and six assists. So like that should be noted. Uh he went twelve of seventeen on two, six of six on free throws. Beal was tremendous in the third quarter, during which he scored 17 of the Wizards' 31 points. Beal in that third quarter went 7 of 8 from the field. And I tell you what about Beal, he seemed to be moving better off having been dealing with that left hamstring strain. So all of that was good, and especially if, in fact, he's truly on the mend here from this left hamstring strain, and he suggested as much after the game uh that certainly is a good sign for what may be coming in this series, right? That like Bradley Beal may be at or at least close enough to 100% to where he can maybe help the Wizards steal a game or two or more in this series. But Beal, I mentioned the five second half turnovers. He finished the game with six turnovers and he finished the game one of six on threes. This was another bad game for Bradley Beal on threes. For the season, he in the regular season. Keep in mind, for all the good that Bradley Beal did, you know, leading score in the Eastern Conference, etc., had the worst three-point shooting season of his career. Beal did in the regular season, and then Westbrook to me just did not have a very good game one overall. You know, there are a few things here and there to like, but 0 two on threes, just seven of fifteen on twos, committed six turnovers, including the aforementioned three and the fourth quarter, and Westbrook had just five rebounds. Now, that would be a good total for most point guards, but as we all know with Westbrook, that's not a good total. That's actually well less than half of his per game average for this past regular season. Westbrook this past regular season averaged 11.5 rebounds per game, which is just a jaw-dropping number for a point guard. Uh, only had the five rebounds on Sunday. Now, did finish with 16 points, did have 14 assists, including eight assists in the second half, but also for Westbrook in the second half, with him scoring just six points on two of seven shooting. If the Wizards are going to win games in this series, let alone win this series, it has to be because Beal and Westbrook are on fire as they were on fire for so much of the latter portion of the regular season, right? Wizards finishing the regular season 17-6 and over the team's final 23 games. You did not have that on Sunday. Neither Beal nor Westbrook was on fire. Beal was good in the third quarter, like I said, but otherwise it was a disappointing game given what we know each guy is capable of. Also for the Wizards on Sunday, they got scorched by Tobias Harris. Uh, You know, it's been said a decent amount during this Wizards season that the Wizards, maybe more than anything, need a three and D wing. A wing player who can shoot the three and a wing player who can D up. And what happened with Harris in game one is like exhibit A, if you're trying to make the case for the Wizards being in dire need of a three and D wing this offseason. The Wizards could not stop Tobias Harris, he finished 2 of 5 on threes, 13 of 24 on twos, 5 of 5 on free throws, 37 points, 6 rebounds, 2 assists, versus 2 turnovers, and 2 steals. The Wizards allowed Harris in the first half to score 28 points. Second half was actually better, but the first half, I mean, Tobias Harris was like on another planet, 28 points in the first half, and watching Harris go off as he did, to me it was a reminder that the Wizards do miss Denny Obdiab. And it may sound kind of funny because, I mean, Denny Avdia, right, he was a rookie. He's certainly not someone who, like, statistically speaking, produced game in, game out. But Denny Avdia, at various points, you could have very much made the case was the Wizards' best defensive player in the regular season. Now, I know, that's kind of like calling someone the nicest guy in prison, okay? I get that. But Denny Avdia is someone who profiles as a good defender, who certainly has shown signs of being a good defender. He's been out with a season-ending right ankle fracture since he suffered the injury on April 21st. And the Wizards, you know, you you can't really sit here and say, like, they missed him a ton down the stretch of the regular season, again, 17-6. and But in a spot like this, in a game like this, against an opponent like this, you could have used Avnia. You know, And, and with Harris going off, Rui Hachimura was having difficulty with Tobias Harris. I'm not saying Avdi would have shut down Harris, but having Avdija would have helped, and you clearly did not have him, and so Harris went off over the first two quarters. When it came to Joel Embiid, I thought this was interesting and perhaps encouraging. The Wizards have this, of course, three-headed center monster that we've talked about, right? Alex Len as the starter, and then Daniel Gafford and Robin Lopez off the bench. And no, the Wizards three-headed center monster did not, like, shut down Joel Embiid in game one. But I did think that the results were mixed. And in that regard, this wasn't a total loss cause. Embiid for the game, 0-3 on threes. You like that. Embiid for the game, just six rebounds. You like that. Embiid for the game committed five turnovers. You like that. Embiid for the game committed four fouls. You like that. Now, Embiid also finished with 30 points, including 21 in the second half. You don't like that. That was a problem. The Wizards had a hard time of defending Embiid without fouling Embiid. Embiid ended up going 12 of 13 on free throws. There ended up being a major free throw discrepancy in the game. The Sixers went 23 of 33 on free throws. The Wizards went 12 of 15 on free throws. So yes, the Wizards only lost by seven, but that could have been a lot worse if the Sixers are better on free throws. Again, just 23 of 33. But how about the difference in terms of free throw attempts? Sixers had 33, Wizards had 15. And if you caught Scott Brooks' virtual post-game press conference, he noted the free throw discrepancy, but he made clear that he wasn't complaining about the officiating. He said, no, we deserve to be called for as many fouls as were called on us. The Wizards have had a hard time at various points this season defending without fouling. And that clearly was an issue on Sunday against MB. Daniel Gafford, who has had foul troubles in the past, he finished with five fouls. Robin Lopez committed 4 fouls, Alex Len had 3 fouls. So the three-headed center monster combined for 12 fouls in the game. That's an issue. You can't keep doing that uh, if you're going to try to win this series. But the Wizards three-headed center monster also was very efficient offensively. Gafford, Lopez and Len combined for 30 points on 13 of 16 shooting and 11 rebounds. And I know it's not as simple as you just add up what all the guys do because at times they are on the floor at the same time. But that's pretty good. I mean, Gafford, Lopez, and Len, 30 points, 13 of 16 shooting, 11 boards. Gafford had himself another impressive game off the bench this season. 12 points, 6 of 6 shooting, 6 rebounds, 2 assists, Versus no turnovers. Andy had the best plus-minus rating on the Wizards, plus fourteen in just twenty minutes one second off the bench. Lopez had six points, three or four shooting, and eleven forty-eight off the bench. Len twelve points, four six shooting, three rebounds in sixteen eleven as a starter. He did though just go four seven on free throws, including air bowling a free throw attempt, which is hard to do, although not totally unheard of. Uh, that was a bad moment for Len and the Philly fans. Let him have it uh, when that went down. But, you know, if you're watching this series and, you know, you're saying to yourself, OK, can the Wizards make this a series? I was not totally discouraged by what went down with Embiid in game number one. I mean, Embiid, right, he's had a spectacular season. Joel Embiid is one of three finalists for the NBA's MVP award for the regular season. Joel Embiid, especially when you look at some of the advanced stuff. I mean, what a season the guy had. Number two in the NBA in player efficiency rating at 30.32. So like, it's all kind of relative, right? And like I said, he finished with 30 points, including 21 in the second half. So like, nobody's holding a parade over that. But he could have torched you. And he has torched the Wizards in the past. And I wouldn't say that he torched the Wizards overall in this game. Got to do a better job of defending him without fouling. But I will take over three on threes. I will take just six boards. I will take five turnovers. I will take Embiid dealing with some foul trouble of his own in committing four fouls. And that's the thing. The Wizards did do things well in game one. Not enough things well, but this was far from some like 20-point blowout loss that makes you say to yourself, what are we even doing here? Like the Wizards just don't belong in the same gym as the Sixers. You know, the Wizards in game one outscored the Sixers in the paint, 76-58. The Wizards shot well in game one. Wiz went 8-20 of on threes and 41-68. of on twos. Now, I would argue the Wizards don't take enough threes. I think that's one of the things that needs to be addressed this offseason. Wizards have got to become more modern from a standpoint of shooting more threes. It's it's tricky with the Wizards because they are extremely modern in the pace at which they play. The Wizards finished the regular season number one in the NBA in pace per NBA.com. Uh, that's simply possessions for 48 minutes. The Sixers, in case you're curious, finished 12th. But when it comes to playing fast, When it comes to running and gunning, no team did that better than the Wizards in the regular season. I think though that would be even more profound if the Wizards shot the three more and shot the three better because then you're playing with pace. You're playing with a bunch of possessions game in game out and you're hitting more threes. So you're scoring more points if you do that. So that's something that needs to be addressed, but the Wizards did shoot the three well eight of 20. Like I said to go with 41 to 68 on twos and keep this in mind. The Philadelphia 76ers in the regular season were second in the NBA. In defensive rating, that's simply points allowed per 100 possessions per NBA.com. So in facing an elite defensive team, the Wizards shot the ball well, also were able to more or less play the game at their pace. The, the Wizards, you know, this at times was, yes, a slowed down game, but at the end of the game, and this kind of surprised me when I looked at some of the numbers, the game was more or less played at the pace that the Wizards like. The Wizards pace for the season in terms of possessions per 48 minutes was 104.67. That's the territory that this game ended up being in, in terms of pace. It was nice to see Davies Berton show up and make some shots. He went four of eight on threes, finished with 14 points and five rebounds and 27-54 off the bench. I didn't love Rui Hachimura's game, but he did go two of two on threes in the fourth quarter. That was good to see. Rui finished uh, with just 12 points and five rebounds in 36 minutes, eight seconds as a starter. Also had the game's worst plus-minus rating at minus 19 And there's also this too, the Wizards in game one held the Sixers to just 10 of 32 on three. So yes, Tobias Harris had a big game and yes, Joel Embiid went off in the second half from a scoring standpoint, but actually the Wizards defense wasn't as bad As you may think, if the Wizards do a better job of not fouling the Sixers, specifically Embiid, and if Westbrook and Beal aren't as careless with the basketball as they ended up being in the second half, especially the fourth quarter, I think there's a really good chance you're talking about a Wizards win in game one. So I'm not totally discouraged by what we saw. It still, though, is very much an uphill climb because this obviously is not a one and done situation like the NCAA tournament. This isn't even a best out of five as used to be the case in the first round of the NBA playoffs. This is best of seven, which makes it awfully difficult to have upsets. And that's why the NBA playoffs have been so predictable, painfully predictable over the years. The Wizards are up against it here. I and mean, the Sixers are a really good team. You know, there's no guarantee the Sixers play like this again. The Sixers could come out and thrash the Wizards in game two Wednesday night in Philly. But I did like a good bit of what we saw from the Wizards. And keep in mind, we saw what we saw despite not.
0: You need indeed.
1: Beal nor Westbrook having a great game. You know, Beal was good in some ways, but not that good in others. Westbrook was not nearly as good as we've seen him be over these last few weeks. So if you can clean up some of the things we talked about and Beal and Westbrook catch fire, this could end up being a competitive series, which I would love to see. Now, what that means for the long term, again, that's a big picture topic. We'll address that when the Wizards season is over. But for now, we are in a postseason series and the Wizards took it to the Sixers in game one. But ultimately, yes, Denny, let the Sixers off the hook.
0: They are who we thought they were, and we let them off the hook.
1: Exactly. Game two in Philly, Wednesday night at seven. All right, guys. Look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to Get com slash Algaldi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A US licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan if medication is appropriate. It ships to you free with two day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash Al and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash Al now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED GetRoman.com slash Al Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. For the second time in the Nationals 2021 season, the Nats have authored a three-game sweep. Nats with a three-game sweep of the Orioles at Nationals Park over the weekend as round one of the 2021 Battle of the Beltways goes in the Nats' favor decisively. Although it's not like the Nats dominated the series. There actually was quite a bit to be concerned about from an ads perspective. We'll get to that, but the ads do get the three game sweep. They're now 20 and 23, still in last place in the National League East, but just two and a half games behind the first place New York Mets, who are 21 and 19. The extent to which the National League East has been a big flop so far really can't be overstated. This was supposed to be the best and deepest division in the majors. And maybe it turns out that way, but for now, the National League East has been a major disappointment. Four of the five teams under 500, three of the five teams with negative run differentials. And so while, yes, the Nationals overall have been disappointing, three games under 500, just two and a half games out of first, more than a quarter of the way into the season. You look at the three games over the weekend against the Orioles, 4-2 win on Friday night, 12-9 win on Saturday, 6-5 win on Sunday afternoon. The biggest bright spot by far for the Nats was the offense. The bats. They did as they should have done against a tanking team like the O's. The nats slaughtered the Orioles terrible pitching. The nats in the series scoring 22 runs going 38 for 106 with 10 walks. That's more like it when it comes to batting. Now, how much of this was the Orioles very bad pitching versus the nats bats actually awakening? Very hard to say, but give credit where credit's due. What should a good team do against a bad team? feast on the bad team, and the Nationals, when it came to the Orioles' bad pitching, feasted over the weekend. And the biggest development when it came to the Nats' bats, to me, was the continued rise of two guys, two newcomers who had been killing the Nats, Kyle Schwerber and Josh Bell. We'll start with Schwarber. Kyle Schwerber was the Nats' starting left fielder in all three games in the series. He, for the series, went 5-for-12 with a home run, two doubles, two singles, and two walks. Kyle Schwarber now has increased his OPS for the season by 126 points over his last 17 games. His OPS for the season, that's on-base percentage plus slugging percentage, has gone from 672 to 798. He's basically an 800 OPS guy on the year now. If you didn't know anything, you'd say, hey, Kyle Schwarber's having a nice season, 800 OPS. That's where Kyle Schwarber now is at on the year. The 4-2 win on Friday night, Schwarber two for five with two doubles and an RBI, although he did strike out twice and leave five men on base. That was bad to see, but still, a couple of hits. Schwarber in the 12-9 win on Saturday, two for four with two singles and a walk. And then Schwarber in the 6-5 win on Sunday afternoon, one for three with a two-run homer and a walk. Schwarber blasting a one-out first pitch, two-run bomb to right center field in the Nationals' four-run first inning. Now, he also had a seven-pitch walk with one out in the Nats, one-run fifth. Got caught trying to steal second base in what looked like a failed hit and run by the Nats. That was bad. But overall, Kyle Schwarber offensively is becoming the player that he's known to be. And then there's Josh Bell. And I think there's still a ways to go with Josh Bell, but we are seeing concrete signs that Bell finally, mercifully, is coming out of the funk that he was stuck in to begin his season. So Josh Bell was an at-starting first baseman in games one and three in the series, came off the bench in game two. Bell for the series, five for 10 with a double and four singles. So Josh Bell now has increased his OPS for the season by 158 points over his last 10 games. His OPS for the year has gone from 487 to 645 over his last 10 games. Now, a 645 OPS is still not very good, but it's miles better than the dreck that was a 487 OPS for Josh Bell on his season. Go back to the 4-2 win on Friday night. Bell in that game as a number three batter, three for five with a double, two singles, and an RBI. Did strike out twice, but he had a two-out first pitch double in a Nationals two-run fifth, had a two-out single in a Nationals one-run sixth after the run was scored, and he had a two-out first pitch RBI single in the bottom of the eighth. And also in that game on Friday night, Josh Bell, a tremendous defensive play for the second out in the top of the sixth. Bell on a Trey Mancini one-out double, got the ball, which had been overthrown by Juan Soto, And then Bell, on the run, made a great running one-hop throw against his body to Jan Gomes, who made a nice diving tag to get Austin Hayes out at home. That really was some play by Josh Bell. And it wasn't a play he was supposed to make because the ball wasn't supposed to come to him. It ended up coming to him because Juan Soto overthrew the cutoff man, Josh Harrison, and Bell did a really good job uh, on that play. Bell's not known for his defense at all. He's, He's been a bad defensive player for his career, but he came through in a huge way in that win on Friday night defensively and then in the 6-5 win on Sunday afternoon Bell again number three batter two for four with two singles and at an RBI had a one-out RBI single in the Nationals 4 run first had a first pitch leadoff single in the bottom of the third now he did have a base running boo-boo in that inning inexplicably got thrown out at third for the second out on a ground ball to the Orioles shortstop Freddie Galvis what Bell was doing and trying to advance the third on a grounder in front of him I have no idea. And Bell spiked the Orioles' third baseman, Michael Franco, on the play. Bell is a big dude, so I'm sure Franco was in pain. He certainly looked to be in pain after that play. Uh, but still, two more hits for Josh Bell in the game on Sunday. He's doing a lot in the way of first pitch hits here lately. So that seems to be a strategy of swing at the first pitch, you know, try to just attack pitchers, ambush pitchers, and it's working well. Again, the OPS for Josh Bell is shot up over. His last 10 games. Also for the Nats offense in the three game sweep of the Orioles, Josh Harrison was the Nats starting second baseman in games one and three, was the starting center fielder in game two. Josh Harrison is Ron Rivera's favorite player on the Nationals has to be because Josh Harrison offers, wait for it, position flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, exactly. Josh Harrison offers position flex. He was the Nats number six batter in all three games in the series, went five for 10 with a grand slam, a double, three singles, and a walk. So for Josh Harrison now on the season, he has a 307 batting average, has a 380 on base percentage, has a 457 slugging percentage. Remember how the Nats got Josh Harrison? He was released by the Philadelphia Phillies last summer, did a nice job for the Nats over the course of the rest of the season. Nats re-signed him early this past offseason. And Harrison, because of the Carter Keyboom flop, has been thrust into being the Nationals everyday second baseman, although at times we see him now in center field, I guess and Harrison has been very productive, offensively speaking, and how about that grand slam? Came in the 12-9 win on Saturday. Josh Harrison, a two-out grand slam to left center field in the bottom of the third, despite having been down to the count at 1.12. The Nats had been awful up until that point this season with the bases loaded. The Nats, as of that plate appearance, were six for 41 with no homers with the bases loaded in the 2021 season Harrison changes that with one swing the glorious grand slam in that wild game on Saturday and then Harrison on Sunday two for four with a double and a single in the 6-5 win did strike out twice but he had a two out double in the Nats four run first a one out first pitch single in the Nats one run fifth and Harrison made a very nice defensive play leaping catch with his left arm outstretched above his head to Rob Trey Mancini of a leadoff hit for the first out in the top of the fifth. Trey Turner had himself a nice series. Starting shortstop, number one batter in all three games, went 4-14 with a double and three singles. And the game in which he did not have a hit, the 4-2 win on Friday night, 0-5 with a strikeout, Trey made a great defensive play to end that game. Uh, he, in shallow left field, made a terrific backhanded and sliding stab of a Michael Franco grounder. And then from the outfield, Grass delivered a one-hop throw to Josh Bell at first base, for the third out in the top of the ninth inning. So even when Trey's bat didn't do well, the glove did. Trey Turner is having a really good season. We saw more of that over the weekend. Then there is Juan Soto. So Juan Soto did not have a bad series. He was that starting right fielder and number two batter in all three games. He for the series went four for 13 with a double three singles and two walks. He's still not hitting for nearly enough power. He's only slugging 419 since he came off the 10 day injured list on May 4th but he's batting 290 since he came off the IL. He has an on-base percentage of 405 since he came off the IL. So it's not like he's been some, you know, total mess. It's just he's not hitting for nearly enough power. But there was an incident in the game on Sunday. So Soto was not among those Nationals who got in on the act in a 6-5 win. He went over 5 and he had a big time blunder the final out in the Nationals' one-run fourth inning. Runner on third, two outs. Soto sends a pop-up high into the air near home plate that the Orioles catcher, the ex-nat Pedro Severino, ended up not catching. Now, it looked like Soto thought the ball was a foul pop-up, and it certainly looked like that, and it probably was that initially, but it ended up dropping in fair territory. Severino misplayed the pop-up. The ball landed on the ground, but because Soto wasn't initially running. He got thrown out at first base for the final out in one of the weirdest ground outs that you'll ever see. Now, not long after that, Masson's cameras caught the Nationals hitting coach, Kevin Long, seemingly giving Soto a pep talk. Soto seemed to be pretty down on himself. Long was uh, looked like kind of consoling Soto, talking up Soto, patting him on the back, that sort of a thing. And then came what Davey Martinez said. During his post game zoom press conference, Davy saying that what Soto did was quote embarrassing for the whole club end quote and Davy saying that he made Soto apologize to the entire team. Take a listen. I already talked to him about it. It's, uh, and I told him it's embarrassing, um, for the whole club. He understands that. Um, and I, and I made him apologize to the team and I told him it, it doesn't happen again and he understands that as well. Yeah, you know, it's not often you hear Davey talk like that. We are used to jovial Davey, upbeat Davey, positive Davey, glass half full Davey, proud of the boys, Davey. I'm proud of the boys. Exactly, Davey, but you didn't get that there from Davey, and you know what? I'm just fine with that. You know, Davey now has himself some authority when you consider the contract extension that he finally got, when you consider that he's not going anywhere anytime soon, you know, barring something unforeseen. And so Davey Martinez now is able to dig his heels in a little bit, you know? He's been able to set up the Nationals coaching staff in a way that Davey wanted, like bringing in the pitching coach Jim Hickey, who was with Davey when Davey was the bench coach for Joe Madden on the Chicago Cubs. And Davey can do something like call out Juan Soto publicly, let alone privately. I mean, how about that? Davey making Soto apologize to the entire team. Now, look, Juan Soto does not have a reputation for being a slacker, for being someone who doesn't hustle. So I think, especially when you look at that camera shot that Masson had with the pep talk or apparent pep talk from Kevin Long, I think Soto recognized what he did was bad. It was a terrible look. And Soto didn't feel great about it. So I'm not sure that Soto needed to be made to apologize to the entire team. But I think there's more to it than just trying to teach Juan Soto a lesson. I think if you're Davey Martinez and you now have this stability and you have this ethos, if you call out the best hitter on the team, heck, maybe the best hitter on the planet, I think that goes a long way with the rest of the team. And when it comes to presiding over a clubhouse as a manager must do, I think this actually helps Davey in a lot of ways. And it gives Davey credibility with his players of, well, you know what he called that Juan Soto? And if he can do that to Soto, then he sure as heck can hold me accountable. So I better do as Davey wants me to do. I better behave. I better do things the right way. You know, that kind of a thing. So I think there was a method to the madness there with Davey Martinez, but that certainly was notable, right? Calling out Juan Soto, not just privately, but publicly. I mean, Davey did not hold back and that post-game Zoom press conference were talking about Soto not running out uh, that pop-up that ended up not being caught by Pedro Severino. Uh, also of note for the Nationals offensively, so Victor Robles did not play in this series, and he's now on the 10-day injured list. The Nats on Sunday did put Robles on the 10-day IL, retroactive to May 20th due to a sprained right ankle that was suffered in that 4-3 win at the Chicago Cubs last Wednesday night. So the Nats tried to play this without having to put Robles on the IL because initially it was like most Nats injuries. Well, it's not that big of a deal. And it still doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. But the Nationals off initially just doing an x-ray and not an MRI, and I'm not sure why, ended up doing an MRI. That revealed a sprained right ankle. And then the Nats on Sunday put Robles on the 10-day IL, although did not announce a corresponding roster move. And I think the reason the Nats did this was get Robles on the 10-day IL on Sunday. You're allowed to backdate IL placements as many as three days. The Nats do that, so back to May 20th. And so Robles can come off the 10-day injured list as soon as this coming Sunday. So that's why I think the Nats put Robles on the 10-day IL on Sunday, even though there was no corresponding move to be made. The Nats didn't have another outfielder ready to go in terms of someone to be summoned uh, from the minors. And I don't even think the Nationals' plan going into Sunday necessarily was to put Robles on the I.L. because the way Davey talked during his pregame Zoom press conference was that we're going to give Robles another day and then maybe on Monday or Tuesday uh, do something with Robles from a transactional standpoint, but instead... That ends up happening on Sunday. And so Andrew Stevenson was an at-starting center fielder in games one and three, came off the bench in game two. Now he went 0-3 with two strikeouts as the number nine batter in the 4-2 win on Friday night. But then Davey finally mercifully got off batting a position player ninth and the starting pitcher eighth, beginning with the 12-9 win on Saturday. And hopefully we're now done with that because I never like that. To me, it doesn't make a lot of sense you know, the david justification would be that putting Victor Robles or Andrew Stevenson in at that number nine spot acted as a second leadoff man. I think that's a very convenient way of looking at things because you, what you end up doing is burying someone, especially in Robles, who at least in theory should be one of your better hitters. It hasn't certainly played out that way so far in his career, but Robles does have a pretty good on-base percentage on the season. And you have the pitcher batting eighth, and it costs you. Anyway, hopefully Davey's now done with that. But Stevenson, off not doing well in the win on Friday night, comes off the bench in the 12-9 win on Saturday. Pinch, lead-off single, and the adds four-run fourth. And then in the 6-5 win on Sunday afternoon, Stevenson, number eight batter, two for three with two singles, and an RBI walk. Uh, Stevenson had a single in the Nats one-run fourth, a one-out seven-pitch bases loaded walk in the bottom of the fifth, and a lead-off single in the bottom of the eighth inning. You know, I mentioned Stevenson with that pinch leadoff single in the 4 run fourth and the win on Saturday. Good stuff off the bench for the Nats in this series. Ryan Zimmerman came through with a pinch hit in the 4-2 win on Friday night. Pinch leadoff first pitch single in the Nationals one-run eighth inning. Then Zim, by the way, as a starting first baseman in the 12-9 win on Saturday. Three for five with a three-run homer and two singles. And Zimmerman became the Nationals slash Expos all-time leader in regular season runs scored. So really good Saturday for Zimmerman. Alex Avila was the Nats' starting catcher, number seven batter in the 6-5 win on Sunday afternoon. Two for three with two doubles, a walk, and an RBI. Yadiel Hernandez had himself two nice pinch hits in this series. 4-2 win on Friday night. Pinch lead-off single in the Nats' one run six. win on Saturday. Pinch one out single in the Nats' three run six. Very nice to see the Nationals bench produce as it has been producing lately. You know, there's a nickname now for the Nationals bench players. The SOBs, the studs off the bench. I like that. I think that can play I mean, especially Ryan Zimmerman, who's been so good, albeit in limited playing time. Zimmerman batting 316 with a 349 on base percentage and a five fifty-seven slugging percentage. And look at Yadiel Hernandez, two ninety-eight batting average on the season, three forty-nine on base percentage. Call them whatever you want. They're calling themselves the SOBs, but Nats are getting some good production off the bench here lately. I still worry about the Nationals lack of depth, but there is something out to be said of, hey, you know what? They got some guys off the bench who can deliver. Then there was the Nats pitching in the three-game sweep of the Orioles. So we'll start with the starting pitching, and we'll just take things sequentially. Steven Strasburg finally was back for game one of this series. He, on Friday night, made just his third start of the season. The Nats on Friday returning Strasburg from his rehab assignment and reinstating him from the 10 day injured list, which he had been on since April 18th, retroactive to April 15th with right shoulder inflammation. And Strasburg, all things considered, did a nice job in that 4-2 win. Uh, five into third scoreless innings. So you like that. Four strikeouts, gave up just one hit, which was a single. What was bad was Strasburg not throwing strikes. He issued four walks. He threw just 39 of his 72 pitches for strikes. You know, 39 strikes versus 33 balls is not good. But as a first start back, you could certainly build upon something like this. I mean, again, five and a third scoreless innings. The four walks were issued over the final nine batters who Strasburg faced. So, you know, there was an element here perhaps of just fatiguing as opposed to just being all over the place throughout the outing. The lone hit that Strasburg gave up was a leadoff single by Anthony Santander in the top of the second inning. So good to have Strasburg back it is though just step one. He does have to be better. He does need to pitch longer and he needs to stay healthy. Okay. This is now season two of the seven year, $245 million contract that he was resigned to in December, 2019. He pitched twice last season in terms of starts. He had pitched twice so far this season in terms of starts. He's got to start eating up some innings here and earning that contract. And uh, hopefully he does that, but given his injury history, uh, you are forgiven if you're not exactly feeling supremely confident in Strasburg doing that. Then came back-to-back bad starts for the Nationals to conclude this series. John Lester in the 12-9 win on Saturday, struggling for a second consecutive start, six runs in four innings on five hits, which were a grand slam, two doubles and two singles, and three walks versus four strikeouts on 79 pitches. Lester allowed five runs in a disastrous top of the first so Lester now is allowed 11 runs in nine and third innings over his last two starts off having allowed just four runs in 16 innings over his first three starts of the season. You know, Lester in his last outing prior to the one on Saturday, the 7-3 loss of his former team, the Chicago Cubs, last Monday night, got shelled five runs in five and a third innings, gave up three home runs in that game. And now here you are, a second straight bad start for a guy in Lester who, remember, was bad the last two seasons for the Cubs. You know, this is not Peak John Lester anymore. And while he did do a reasonably good job over his first three starts for the Nats this season, he has not done well, not done well at all over his last two outings. So that's something to be concerned about. And Patrick Corbin, I got to tell you, I'm very down on Patrick Corbin right now. He did not look good in the 6-5 win on Sunday afternoon. Four runs in five and two-thirds innings on 11 hits, which were two doubles and nine singles, two walks versus three strikeouts. He threw 95 pitches, 62 of which were strikes. But just think about this for a moment, okay? You have the Orioles who are a tanking team. They are a bad team. The Orioles on Sunday did not start their best position player so far this season in Cedric Mullins. He came off the bench. And yet still, against this opponent, not playing that guy, Patrick Corbin gets rocked to the tune of four runs in five and two-thirds innings, gives up 11 hits. Patrick Corbin did not have a single clean inning in the game on Sunday afternoon. Davey Martinez interestingly allowed Corbin to bat with the bases loaded two outs and the tats leading six four in the bottom of the fifth. Uh, Corbin flying out to end the inning. And then Corbin ended up getting pulled from the game after facing three batters in the top of the six. So the decision by Davey, which I didn't like in the moment, ended up looking even worse with Corbin getting pulled three batters into the top of the six. The justification from Davey was that the bullpen has been taxed. Davey is trying to buy the bullpen a little more time in terms of not using so many guys, but Davey ended up using a bunch of guys in the game and ended up pulling Corbin, like I said, just three batters into the top of the sixth inning. Here's the thing, the way Corbin was going, I mean, what did Davey realistically think was going to happen with Corbin? He was going to eat up another three innings? Like, no, best case he was going to go another inning, and even that was far from a certainty, given how Corbin had been pitching. So I didn't like the strategery. Strategery. Yes, the strategery from Davey. In allowing Patrick Corbin to bat in that spot with the bases juiced in a series that became a slugfest in a lot of ways over the final two games, you needed every run you could get, and that's only ended up winning that game on Sunday by the one run. But Corbin was not good. Three runs in the top of the first: first pitch leadoff single by Austin Hayes, single by Freddie Galvis, full count RBI single by Trey Mancini, RBI single by Anthony Santander, two out RBI double by Michael Franco, and then Corbin issued a two out full count walk a Ryan Mountcastle. Corbin gave up another run in the top of the third, leadoff single by Trey Mancini, double by Anthony Santander, one at RBI sack fly by Michael Franco. Here's where we are now with Patrick Corbin on the season over nine starts. ERA of 613, a whip of 1.55, all right? And there have been starts that you say, well, that was good. Like the start he had a couple of starts ago, the 5-1 win over the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park on May 13th. Corbin was terrific in that game. One run in seven innings, nine strikeouts. But he goes from that start to doing what he did in his next outing, the 6-3 loss at the Chicago Cubs last Tuesday night, three runs into five innings. And then comes what came on Sunday afternoon, the 6-5 win over the O's, four runs in five and two-thirds innings on 11 hits and two walks. He is not having a good season of having had a bad season last year that everyone wanted to write off to the pandemic. I've never seen a guy have a bad season that was written off more than Corbin's was in 2020. Everyone was just like, "Eh, you know, pandemic, Eh, you know, shortened season. I'm like, yeah, okay, fine. But it wasn't just that he was bad. It's that he was awful last year. He gave up the most hits in the majors Corbin did in 2020. And here we are now, nine starts into his 2021 season. He's got an ERA of 613 and his walks plus hits divided by innings pitched is 1.55. It's not good. And at this point, you no longer say, well, Patrick Corbin is off to a bad start. No, Patrick Corbin is having a bad season and that can change. Okay. Nine starts isn't everything in a season, but it's enough of a sample size to where I think you have every right to be concerned, especially again, given how much he struggled in 2020. I tell you, 2019 Patrick Corbin seems like a ways away right now. It's just every every start, you don't know what to expect from him. And yes, he can be good and has been good. It actually multiple starts so far this year, but he's been bad in many more starts. And he's been bad way too often so far this season, as was the case last season. And so the Nationals ended up having to lean on their bullpen a ton again in this series. Like I said, yes, the Nats swept the Orioles, but this was not some dominant series for the Nationals. Uh, and the Nats' bullpen continues to show signs of coming back down to earth. Nats' relievers in the series combined to allow six runs in 12 innings. I mean, that's not down bullpen work, okay? The bright spot clearly does continue to be Daniel Hudson. Uh, what a season Daniel Hudson is putting together. And it is remarkable because Hudson was bad last season. Hudson was bad this past exhibition season. But he's been dominant so far this year. He ends up pitching in all three games in the series, just like Brad Hand. And this goes back to, again, yes, the Nats swept the series, but it was not a dominant series. You know, you should not have to use your two best relievers in all three games of a series against a tanking team like the Orioles. And yet the Nats did. That tells you something about the way things went in this series. But Hudson, to his credit, was really good. 4-2 win on Friday night. Hudson, a perfect top of the eighth. That included a five-pitch strikeout of pinch hitter DJ Stewart. 12-9 win on Saturday. Hudson, a fireman in the top of the eighth, came into the game with a runner on second, no outs, and the Nats nursing a 12-9 lead. And while Hudson did give up a one-out single to Cedric Mullins on an 0-2 pitch, Hudson also retired the other three batters he faced, including striking out pinch hitter DJ Stewart on three pitches for the first out and striking out Trey Mancini on three pitches with runners on first and third and two outs and then in the 6-5 win on Sunday afternoon Hudson in pitching for a third consecutive day in pitching for a fourth time in five days tossed a perfect top of the eighth that began with strikeouts of pinch hitter Cedric Mullins and Ryan Mountcastle again Hudson should not have had to have been used three times in three days in this series but he was and he came through. And now for Daniel Hudson in the 2021 season, over 17 innings of work. He has an ERA of 106. He has a whip of 0.65. He has 22 strikeouts versus five walks. He has been outstanding. Cannot say enough about the job that Daniel Hudson has done so far this year. Now, Brad Hand. Where are we with Brad Hand? Good question. I'm not really sure. He struggled again in the 4-2 win on Friday night. Struggled for a fifth time in six appearances. Allowed two runs in the top of the ninth on a one-out double by Trey Mancini on a 1-2 pitch and a two-out, two-run homer by Freddie Galvis. The outing left Hand as having allowed nine runs, seven earned, in five and a third innings over his previous six games. The good news with Brad Hand, though, is in pitching again in all three games in the series, he actually ended up doing quite well in games two and three. 12-9 win on Saturday, Hand a perfect top of the ninth 6-5 win on Sunday afternoon. Hand, a scoreless top of the ninth, although he did give up a lead off single. So, you know, with Hand, it's like when he's looked bad lately, he's looked quite bad. But when he's looked good lately, he's actually looked pretty good. So it's, it's a Jekyll and Hyde scenario right now with Brad Hand, but he did end up getting the job done over his final two appearances in the three-game series. The other thing of note with the Nats bullpen in this series is that Will Harris now is on the 10-day injured list. And I don't expect to see Will Harris anytime soon. So 12-9 win on Saturday. Harris, in the top of the eighth, gave up two runs, recorded no outs. He allowed a leadoff single to Michael Franco, double to Ryan Mountcastle, and a full count two-run double to Pat Vileka. That outing left Harris as having allowed six runs in six innings over eight games on the season. And sure enough, the Nats on Sunday put Harris back on the 10-day injured list with right-hand inflammation. Corresponding roster move was recalling Kyle McGowan from AAA Rochester, actually just two days after optioning McGowan to Rochester as a corresponding roster move to returning Steven Strasburg from his rehab assignment and reinstating him from the 10-day I.L. But keep in mind with Harris, he did not make his 2021 regular season debut until May 4th. He missed the Nats' first 24 games of the season due to right-hand inflammation, and now he's back on the 10-day I.L due to right hand inflammation. And right hand inflammation is just a phrase for, we're not really sure what's going on with this guy's right hand. Will Harris back on March 13th felt numbness in his fingers while throwing in a B game in spring training. We on March 19th were told that Harris had been diagnosed with a blood clot in his right arm However, Davey Martinez on March 26 revealed that a procedure on Harris had revealed that he had not had a blood clot in his right arm, nor the more serious thoracic outlet syndrome, and in fact could be back pitching for the Nats soon. Well, soon was it nearly soon enough. Harris did come back to pitch uh, 24 games into the regular season, like we said but he's not been very good. Now he's back on the 10 day IL. He's going to be looked at again. And especially given that he's an older pitcher and there is, you know, an element of mystery to this thing of no one's really quite sure what exactly is going on here. I would not count on seeing Will Harris anytime soon. And that's a shame because prior to signing with the Nats two off seasons ago, Will Harris had been a consistent quality reliever for the Houston Astros for years. And the Nats haven't really gotten a sense of that with Harris over his first two seasons with the team. No game for the Nats on Monday. They, this week, will continue their nine-game homestand with a three-game series against the Cincinnati Reds, Tuesday night through Thursday night. This is a nine-game series in which the Nats can get fat and happy here. Three games against the Orioles, three games against the Reds, three games against the Milwaukee Brewers. All three of those teams are non-winning teams on the season. The Orioles are a tanking mess uh, the Reds are sub-500, 20 and 25. The Brewers are 500 at 23 and 23. But all three teams are in the double-digit territory when it comes to negative run differential. There's no reason the Nats, if they are the team that they are supposed to be, don't go minimum six and three over these nine games, if not better now, given that the Nats just authored this three-game sweep of the Orioles. No, the Nats were not dominant in the series, but the Nats' bats busted out, and bottom line, you got three wins. And that's all that matters at the end of the day. And while, yes, the Nats do remain last in the National League East, because the NL East has been so underwhelming, the Nats are just two and a half games behind the first-place Mets. All right, some quick thoughts on Nationals Orioles from an Orioles perspective. So the O's now are reeling, and the O's have very much morphed into the team that the O's were supposed to be this season. Remember the O's got off to kind of a nice fun start, fifteen and sixteen. Well, since then the Orioles are two and thirteen. O's now have lost six consecutive games, and yes, thirteen of fifteen games, seventeen and twenty-nine now is the Orioles record on the season so the Orioles pitching again was really bad in this series the starting pitching was actually decent in game one but was atrocious in games two and three Jorge Lopez in the Orioles 4-2 loss at the Nats on Friday night actually had one of his better starts so far this season two runs in five innings on eight strikeouts versus seven hits which were three doubles and four singles and three walks one of which was intentional through 88 pitches 59 strikes versus 29 balls. That to me is a successful start for Jorge Lopez. He had really struggled, uh, up until that start on the season. Came into the game Lopez did with an ERA of 635, a whip of 141 over eight starts on the year. But then came the bad starting pitching. Bruce Zimmerman in the 12-9 Orioles loss at the Nats on Saturday. Not good. Five runs in three innings on seven hits, a homer and six singles. Also issued a walk. Recorded just two strikeouts on 82 pitches. 48 strikes versus 34 balls. Homie had to throw 82 pitches over three innings. Very disappointing to see this from an Orioles perspective. You know, Zimmerman was coming off having been really good in his previous outing. 10-6 win over the New York Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards now two Sunday afternoons ago. In that game, Zimmerman relieved the Orioles opener, Adam Pletko, who got shelled four runs in the top of the first on two homers, two singles, and a walk. Zimmerman comes into the game. He allows one run in five and two-thirds innings on six strikeouts, but he still has struggled for the most part this year, struggled again on Saturday. And then Matt Harvey in the 6-5 loss at the Nats on Sunday afternoon, bad for a third consecutive start. Six runs, five earned in four and two-thirds innings on nine hits which were a homer, three doubles and five singles, also issued a walk, did have six strikeouts, but he threw 92 pitches over four and two-thirds innings. And like I said, this is now three really bad starts in a row for Matt Harvey. He has gone from a nice feel-good story to now just a total wreck. Harvey in the 13-6 Orioles lost to the Tampa Bay Rays at Camden Yards last Tuesday night, second shortest start of his major league career, six runs, in one and two thirds innings. Harvey and his return to city field in the Orioles 7-1 loss at the New York Mets on May 12th. Seven runs in four into third innings. Here we are now. Matt Harvey over 10 starts this season. ERA is 631, whip of 158. And I'll say what I said after Harvey's last start. I don't know how much longer if you're the Orioles, you're going to keep dancing this dance. Matt Harvey is not here to be a building block for the future. Matt Harvey is a veteran pitcher who's trying to reestablish himself. The Orioles, I believe, signed Matt Harvey to flip Matt Harvey, which I was totally fine with. But at some point, if you're the Orioles, you're tanking, you're rebuilding, you want to see what you have in a bunch of young players. The juice ain't worth the squeezing on trying to fix and flip Matt Harvey. And this is now three consecutive bad starts I'm not sure how much longer it's worth having Matt Harvey make starts for you. If you're going to have a guy continually struggle, have it be a younger pitcher who maybe, just maybe, is going to blossom into something for you. Matt Harvey is not going to do that. All you're trying to do again with Matt Harvey is fix him and flip him. And if there ain't no fixing him, then there ain't no flipping him. And if there ain't no flipping him, then he's got no place on a team like the Orioles in 2021. Some bright spots for the Orioles. So Anthony Santander was back in this three-game sweep at the Nats, and he looked good. The O's on Friday activated Santander from the 10-day injured list, which he'd been on since April 21st due to a sprained left ankle. Santander was the Orioles' starting right fielder and number four batter in all three games in the series. He went six for 13 with a homer, two doubles, three singles, and a spectacular walk. The walk was an 11-pitch walk in the Orioles' five-run first in the 12-9 loss on Saturday. And that walk was drawn by Santander, despite him having been down in the count at one point, one two That was some piece of hitting by Santander to go from down one two to ultimately working an eleven pitch walk and what ended up being a five run Orioles first of John Lester on Saturday. Uh, Santander also in the game, one-out double on a 1-2 pitch in the Orioles' one-run third. A two-out first pitch solo homer in the top of the fifth and a two-out single in the top of the seventh inning. Santander is a good player. He's a good hitter. Uh, last season, over 165 plate appearances, had a 575 slugging percentage. This is just his age 26 season. Also, Trey Mancini, another good series. He was the Orioles' starting first baseman, number three batter in all three games. Four for 11 with two doubles, three walks, and two RBI in the series so Trey Mancini remains number one in the majors and runs batted in 41 RBI on the year remember this is a guy who didn't play it all last season due to colon cancer and how about the Mancini slash line now batting average of 280 on base percentage of 352 slugging percentage of 520 so the Mancini tear continues and I did want to mention Ryan Mountcastle He's not had a good season so far as one of the Orioles' more promising prospects, but he did end up having a nice series. Starting left fielder and number seven batter for the O's in games two and three. And he hit the grand slam off Lester in the 12-9 Orioles loss at the Nationals on Saturday. Mountcastle, a two-out grand slam in that Orioles five-run first. Also had a double in the Orioles' two-run eighth inning. And Mountcastle in the 6-5 loss on Sunday afternoon. Two-out full count walk after the O's scored their three runs in the top of the first and a leadoff single on an 0-2 pitch in the top of the sixth inning. Orioles now with a three-game series at the Minnesota Twins, Monday night through Wednesday afternoon. Game one, Monday evening at 7.40. John Means, the Orioles' ace, coming off a not-so-great start, will get the start in game one at the Twins. All right. That will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Algaldi. You can email me, the Al Galdi Podcast at Yahoo.com. On Tuesday's installment of the podcast, I will have plenty for you on the Washington football team. Know this OTA practices begin this week for Don Ron and company in Ashburn. So we'll have a lot to be getting into when it comes to that. Also, uh, more fallout from the end of the capital season. The latest on the Wizards first round series with the Philadelphia 76ers and the NBA playoffs. Nationals are off on Monday. Orioles, though, are not. John Means is starting game one of a three-game series at the Minnesota Twins on Monday night. Have a great rest of your Monday. I'll talk to you on Tuesday. <laughs>